Welcome to the AKC Podcast, an audio resource for the King's community following the Associateship of King's College programme. The AKC is an inclusive, research-led programme of lectures, which explore diverse religious and cultural perspectives. For more information, visit kcl.ac.uk forward slash AKC. Lecture resources and further reading links for this lecture are available on the AKC Keats area. Let me begin by thanking the Dean of King's College, the Reverend Dr. Ellen Clark King, whom I respect as a scholar and with whom I am blessed to have a growing relationship with as a colleague and a friend. I thank you for inviting me to deliver one of the AKC lectures on the theme of spirituality in the body. I thank also the AKC director, Professor Claire Carlisle, and the students of King College for trusting me with this lecture. Today, my focus will be on the question, will Black Lives Matter? A spirituality of hope. And so I began. How is the Black Lives Matter protest really making a difference? This was the text I received from my 28-year-old son in response to a video of a nine-year-old Black boy being prevented from eating in a restaurant in my son's United States city of Baltimore, Maryland. The white manager said the outfit the nine-year-old Black child was wearing violated dress code. Yet, as the mother pointed out, a little white boy was allowed to eat in the restaurant wearing an outfit remarkably similar to the one her black son was wearing. As the mother later remarked, I have faced racism time and again, she said, but it's hard when you have to see your child upset because he knows he's being treated different than a white child. As Black Lives Matter's protests began to erupt across the United States and indeed across the world, the daily assaults on Black lives continued. It also seemed that various microaggressions targeting Black bodies were increasing, at least the reports of them were. There was the white female restaurateur who called the police on a woman for being black while sitting on a park bench. Then there was the man who threatened to call the police on several young black men working out in the same gym as he, assuming that they were not members as they were. And the list goes on and on and on. While incidents like these were nothing new to my son, that they were continuing even amidst protests for racial justice, and the fact that the latest involved a nine-year-old child seemed to be the last straw for my son. It's all well and good that organizations like the National Basketball Association and the National Football League now pronounced that Black Lives Matter, he said but it's too little, too late. None of this stuff really makes a difference. I too wondered what difference the protests and racial reckoning would all really make. 
As I contemplated my son's questions regarding the difference Black Lives Matters protests would really make, I began to think that maybe the Afro-pessimists are right. In fact, in one conversation, my son asked what I thought about Afro-pessimism as he had just encountered it in his search for answers. Afro-pessimism argues that anti-Blackness is so pervasive and so deeply ingrained, not simply within systems and structures, but in the very psychic framework of the world, that the affirmation of Black humanity is impossible. Afro-pessimist Frank Wooderson describes Afro-pessimism as a meta-theory. That is a meta theory that is pessimistic about the claims theories of liberation make when the theories try to explain black suffering. This would include black faith claims and the black theologies of liberation that flow from them. For Afro pessimists, there is no hope for a future where black lives will ever matter. The best option, therefore, is for Black people to accept the reality of Black suffering and to stay alive and sane while trying to navigate it. Writing decades before the emergence of Afro-pessimism, philosophical theologian William Jones also recognized the unique nature of Black suffering. For him, Black suffering posed a theodicy question, how to account for the liberatory justice of God in light of the singular magnitude of Black suffering. The profound and unique nature of Black suffering made the theodicy question real for Jones. He asked, is God a white racist? It is my contention, he explained, that peculiarities of Black suffering make the question of divine racism imperative. Adding to this, was the fact that Jones could not discern or foresee a time when Black people would be freed from their suffering. Why has God not eliminated Black suffering? Jones asked. After determining that God could not be counted on to liberate Black people from the perverse realities of white racism, Jones concluded this. He said that, talk about the inevitable liberation of Blacks must be muted. Black hope may run afoul of the changing and adapting forms of racism in the future. Jones' words seem prescient given the changing and stubborn realities of white supremacist anti-Black oppression. From slavery, to lynching, to mass incarceration, to police murders, the assaults on black bodies seem only to, to morph according to the times, but not to end. With the image of George Floyd crying out for his mother as he was being suffocated beneath the weight of a white police officer's knee invading my nightly dreams, and the gravity of my son's questions unsettling my soul. The only thing standing between me and the hopeless despair of Afro-pessimism or a white racist God was my maternal grandmother. Her name was Helen Vivian Dorsey. My sister's brother and I called her Momo. Momo was a poor Black woman who, by the age of 18, was already a widow with a young child, my mother, to rear. 
Momo made her way from Atlanta, Georgia to Columbus, Ohio during the time when Black people were migrating out of the U.S. South in search of a better life. For all the years that I knew Momo, she ran the elevator at the main post office in Columbus, Ohio. Those were the days in which you literally had to ring a bell for the elevator to come. When it arrived, there was an elevator operator in a starched uniform sitting on a little stool who would crank open two gates, ask you which floor you needed to get to, close the gates, push the proper button to get you to your floor. My grandmother was that operator. As a child, I thought her job was so neat, as we used to say. I did not realize then how hard it was to be stuck in an elevator eight hours a day without windows or fresh air and during your share of insults and for a salary that barely kept food on your table. My grandmother hid these hardships from her four grandchildren. No matter how difficult her day might have been, she always made our visits with her fun, even counting out pennies so that we could get treats at the corner store. I was very close to Momo Dorsey. When she would come to visit or even when we would visit her, I always found an excuse to sleep with her at night. It was in those nights, lying in bed next to her, that I got to know about her dream for my siblings and me. My grandmother's dream was that her four grandchildren would complete high school. This was an audacious dream for a woman who barely had a sixth grade education and lived through the time when white officials believed that only white students needed a high school education and so refused to operate schools for black children. Yet, my grandmother held fast to her dream, even to the point of setting money aside out of every paycheck for each of her grandchildren to receive after completing high school. It was in those quiet times before falling off to sleep as I lay in bed with Momo that I discovered what fueled her dream and in fact kept her going long day after long day. Each night without fail, I would hear her prayerful whispers thanking God for getting her through another day and for keeping her grandchildren safe. But most importantly, I heard her pray that the future would be better for her four grandchildren. My grandmother did not live long enough to see her dream for her grandchildren come true. She died from a brain aneurysm at the age of 58 before any of us finished high school. After her death, however, I was determined than, more determined than ever to do my part in making her dream come true, as were my siblings. We each completed high school and much more. I was equally determined to keep alive within me the faith I saw in her, but it was getting harder and harder. As assaults on Black bodies continued, even in the midst of Black Lives Matter protests, I found my faith waning. I wanted to know how in the world my grandmother maintained the hope of faith, the hope in a just God, when all around her suggested otherwise when it came to Black freedom. My grandmother witnessed to a faith that was born at the foot of the cross 
Black faith is therefore a paradox, for even as it was born in the cauldron of slavery, it testified to the justice of God and witnessed to the day when all God's children, even God's Black children, would have shoes. In this regard, Black faith in and of itself is a theodicy, for it resists any notion that the evil that oppresses Black bodies will have the last word. It proclaims a resounding no to the question aptly raised by William Jones as God of white races. However, knowing this and believing this are two different things. I found myself facing a profound spiritual crisis. My son's questions became my own. How do we really know that God cares when Black people are still getting killed? How long do we have to wait for the justice of God? I get it that Christ is Black, but what good is that doing us now, my son asked. My soul was now race restless. The racial trauma of trying to navigate life in a nation indeed in a world that lets black people die had become for me a profound spiritual crisis. Was my faith in the justice of God a fantasy of hope or was it to be trusted? Indeed was God to be trusted. I could see no way beyond the spiritual despair that had overcome my soul. And so I found myself making prayerful pleas similar to those of W.E.B. Du Bois, those he made decades before. Pleas that went like this, he said, bewildered we are in passion toss, made with the madness of a mobbed and mocked and murdered people, straining at the armposts of thy throne, we raise our shackled hands and charge thee, God, by the bones of our stolen fathers, by the tears of our dead mothers, by the very blood of the crucified Christ. What meaneth this? Tell us the plan, give us the sign. Keep not thy silent, O God. Sit no longer blind, Lord God, deaf to our prayer and dumb to our dumb suffering. Surely thou too art not white, O oh Lord, a pale, bloodless, heartless thing, keep not thou silent, O oh God. And then one night, after praying, I remembered the words of Jesus. Do not be afraid, he said. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. In these words, I was being shown the way that I had prayed for. As I wrestled with the doubts that threatened to overwhelm my faith, if not my soul, I literally remembered these words. In hearing this invitation of Jesus to his disciples to go to Galilee, I realized that I, like them, had been stuck in the crucifying shadow of the cross. The black Christ that I saw in the faces of George Floyd or in Auburn Aubrey and Breonna Taylor was a Christ crucified 
as much as I had previously in all of my work critiqued models of redemptive suffering, I had unwittingly become trapped in one. Standing before the cross, I found myself relying on the ancient tradition of redemptive sacrificial hope. This is a hope based on the belief that Jesus was sacrificed for human sin. In seeing the crucified Jesus in the faces of murdered Black people, it was as if their Black lives were being sacrificed to redeem the society, if not the world, from the sin of anti-Black white supremacy. How many black, more Black lives would be required to purge the world of this sin? Black Lives Matter co-founder Patrice Cullors was right when she said that we lived in a place that is literally allowed for us to believe and center only Black death. It was no wonder then that I was facing a spiritual crisis. I was stuck on the cross that affirmed and centered Black death. So it is here the Patrice Kohler's words become once again instructive for she said, we've forgotten how to imagine black life. Literally whole human beings have been rendered to die prematurely, she said, rendered to be sick and we've allowed for that. Our imagination has only allowed for us to understand black people as a dying people. We have to change that, she said. She goes on to say that our collective imagination, we, someone imagined handcuffs, someone imagined guns, someone imagined a jail cell. Well, how do we imagine something different that actually centers black people, that sees them in the future? Less, she said, imagine something different. In asking his disciples to meet him in Galilee, Jesus was indeed calling them to imagine something different for the world. Jesus was asking them to imagine a world where life, not death, is centered. Indeed, for us, where Black life, not Black death, is centered. And this is why Jesus called his disciples to Galilee. The resurrected Jesus was resurrecting his disciples by inviting them away from the despair of death that was the cross into the hope of new life that was the resurrection. A community that had given up on the possibilities of life, whom had lost faith in the gospel that Jesus preached and perhaps even in God was being called back into life giving ministry. This is what the invitation to Galilee was all about. When I remembered this Galilean invitation, as I stood in my own existential and spiritual despair of crucifying Black deaths all around me, it was as if I was being resurrected, as I was being invited to Galilee to meet the resurrected Jesus. Not knowing where else to go, not knowing where this Galilee might be, I put on my mask and I went down to Black Lives Matter Plaza on 16th and K Street in Washington, DC. It's right down from the White House. And it was there in the midst of a mosaic of people witnessing that Black Lives Matter with shouts, signs and singing that something happened. I literally 
found myself laughing. A full on, on, all on body laugh. Sociologist Peter Berger has described laughing as a signal of transcendence. Signals of transcendence, Berger explains, are phenomenon that are to be found within the domain of our natural reality, but appear to point beyond that reality. They are, he says, gestures that signal a world that transcends the normal everyday world. In this instance, they are those signals from God indicating that there is a just future beyond the unjust present. Peter Berger identifies laughter as one of those signals because as the product of humor, it points to an almost absurd discrepancy. Discrepancy, Berger says, is the stuff of which jokes are made. Furthermore, Berger explains that laughter mocks the serious business of this world and the mighty who carry it on, he said. He's, he says it relativizes the seemingly rock-like necessities of this world. As I stood in the midst of people on Black Lives Matter proclaiming that Black, uh, uh, the midst of people on Black Lives Plaza proclaiming that Black Lives Mattered steps away from the very White House that was espousing a vision to, a white supremacist vision to make America great again, a vision that promised Black death, all I could do was laugh. My laughter was a signal of transcendence, recognizing the discrepancy of the present that was the Make America Great Again vision and the future that was God's vision where black lives would matter and black bodies would no longer be under attack. That I found myself reflexively laughing was like a signal from God mocking and relativizing the Make America Great Again vision. My laughter was a reminder that that vision would not have the last word. The indication of that was the Black Lives Matter demonstration taking place steps away from the White House on a street with the words Black Lives Matter boldly emblazoned on it. My laughter was nothing less than my soul coming alive again. Indeed, as I stood there in what seemed like a sea of people, my laughter was nothing less than a signal of transcendence pointing me to the resurrection hope that it disrupted the seeming futility of crucifying Black death. As I looked around, there it all was, right in front of me. The first thing that struck me as I looked around was that I was witnessing a global movement. As I mentioned earlier, this protest in Washington, D.C. was one of thousands across the globe. These protests were taking place in Sydney, Australia, in Africa, in Asia, and even in London. These protests reflected confidence that there can be a world where Black lives will matter despite the crucifying present. Borrowing from Rene Girard's notion of contagion as it involved the mimetic contagion of violence that culminated in the crucifixion, the Black Lives Matter protests can be viewed as resurrect a resurrecting spiritual contagion. It is often the case, as we know, that seeing another person laugh 
will make seeing one person laugh will make another person laugh and on it goes and goes and goes as laughter creates laughter it is in this way that i viewed the black lives matter protests as a resurrecting spiritual contagion for not only did they make me laugh but they were infectiously spreading across the globe as if they were the laughter of god as these protests spread like a contagion, they demanded conditions within each particularity that would foster Black life. It was as if the resurrecting God was resurrecting communities across the globe from the spiritual despair of crucifying death into the resurrecting hope of new life. As this, and this leads me to the second aspect of protest that I noticed in my laughter as I stood on Black Lives Matter Plaza. Standing in that small space of the plaza in front of the White House was the most motley, diverse crew of God's sacred creation that I had ever seen come together in protest. They reflected an otherwise way of being in the world. They were black, they were white, they were brown, they were Asian and non-Asian, Latinx and non-Latinx, queer and non-queer, trans and non-trans, bi-gendered and non-bi-gendered. They were also young and old and everything in between. As I walked through the crowd, there was clear common cause. There was no claiming of privilege or rank. People were there advocating each in their own way for a world that looked more like God's just future, a future where all people were living in the peace that was justice. They were embodying that very future. As I walked away from Black Lives Matter Plaza to head home, I realized that the protests, along with other Black Lives protests across the globe, was a signal of transcendence. Various people have pointed to the religious and spiritual aspects of the Black Lives Matter movement. For instance, Patrice Cullors describes the Black Lives Matter movement as a spiritual movement. She says that many of the actions are deeply spiritual. There is no doubt that the Black Lives Matter protests are rich with spiritual rituals, practices, and profound meanings. But it was none of those things that led me to recognize the moment, the movement of protest as a signal of transcendence and one that indeed resurrects one's body and soul from crucifying spiritual despair. Rather, instead of rituals and other uh, practices that took place in the movement that indeed could be deemed spiritual, what told me that they were spiritual was because the movement reflects a movement of hope. And hope, Berger says, is itself a signal of transcendence, for it points to the possibilities to overcome the difficulties of any given here and now. The profound manifestations of hope Berger explains, are to be found in gestures, gestures, he says, of courage undertaken in defiance of death. Courage undertaken in defiance of death. There, for me, was no greater witness of hope than those protesters in the face of anti-Black, white supremacist, Black death, not to speak of the raging pandemic, coming out to protest for the just life that God promises us all. To laugh, my friends, is a signal of transcendence. 
It is that which signals a discrepancy between what is and what ought to be, the discrepancy between our unjust earth and God's just future. And so it is, God's resurrection of Jesus after his crucifying death was nothing other than God's last laugh over the crucifying powers of evil that declares itself as greatness in our world. As I walked away from Black Lives Matter Plaza through the music, the singing, and the chants, I heard, I heard God's laughter of resurrection. Ha, 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 you lose. You will not have the last word. Black lives will matter in this world. I went down to Black Lives Matter Plaza that day filled with the spiritual despair of crucifying death. It turns out the Black Lives Matter Plaza was my Galilee. It was there that I indeed found the movement that was the resurrected Jesus. I left Black Lives Matter Plaza laughing for my soul had been revived. But as the summer went on and protests ended, but Black deaths did not, my son asked, how really do you keep hoping? He said, you lived through the 1960s and here we are again. Aren't you just tired of it all? I answered him by telling him about his great-great-grandmother. We called her Mama Mary. Mama Mary was born into slavery. She died when I was around six years old. Every time I think about Mama Mary, I think of those Black people who were born into slavery, died in slavery, and never drew a free breath. In fact, they never dreamt that they would ever breathe a free breath. Yet, they fought for freedom anyhow. They fought for a freedom that they knew they would never see, but believed in fact would one day be. They fought for a freedom that was nothing less than the freedom that was the justice of God. This was their hope, a hope that was found and lived out in their struggle for freedom. For it was in that struggle that they met God a liberating just God, even in the midst of slavery. Theirs is a resurrecting hope, because when I think of them in their fight for freedom, I am resurrected and cannot give in to that which would destroy Black life and indeed would destroy my very soul. It is because of their hope that I am here today speaking to you with a soul that has been resurrected from the depths of spiritual despair. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the AKC podcast. 